My name is Adam. I'm part of the team here, and it's really good to be with you today. It'd be great to have uh, 1 Kings chapter 9 and 10 open in front of you if you have your, your Bible with you. We're going to be uh, spending our time in those chapters today. Now, I must admit, I love a good shark video. When someone is out on the water and they have a, a close encounter with the shark, and I'm always glad that I'm on this side of the screen and, and you know, not on the water where they are. I saw one this week where there was a lady on a boat, she was about to go scuba diving, about to dive into the water, and just as she's about to dive in, this huge shark emerges from underneath with its mouth wide open. She was about to jump almost right into its jaws. There was this danger lurking under the surface, which she didn't even realize until almost too late. Maybe it's a little bit sadistic of me to to watch these videos. Now, I wonder, what is the danger that we face when it comes to our spiritual health? What are the threats to our faith which are lurking under the surface? How would you answer that question? Maybe you would say, the devil is a threat to our faith. And of course, you would be right. First Peter says that our spiritual enemy prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Maybe you would say suffering is a threat to our faith in Jesus. When we go through trials and troubles and difficulties, those things can tempt us to turn our backs on God. Maybe you would say distractions are a danger to our faith. It's Instagram, it's Netflix, it's endless scrolling, mind-numbing distractions. And I would say they are good and valid suggestions. What about affluence and wealth? What about prosperity and possessions? What about comfort and success? The Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul writing to Timothy, a church leader, he says, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, Paul says, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. This scripture is saying the love of money, the desire for stuff, the pursuit of possessions, it is dangerous to our souls. I came across a a book this week titled Affluenza, When Too Much Is Never Enough. And the the blurb on the, the back of this book, it says this, The Western world is in the grip of a consumerism binge that is unique in human history. We overwork. We spend huge amounts on things we never use, then we chuck them out. Our houses are bigger than ever, but our families are smaller. Our kids go to the best schools we can afford, but we hardly see them. We've got more money to spend, yet we're further in debt than ever before. What is going on? Now, that book was actually released in 2005. So before the GFC and before our current economic stability, but I think the diagnosis remains the same. I I don't think the problem has changed. We're still suffering from affluenza, the pursuit of more. And this disease is spiritually dangerous. Augustine, the, the great church theologian and church father, he put it this way. He said, the love of possessions is a sort of trap which entangles the soul and prevents it flying to God. 
Now, the reason I bring this up is because this is the danger that we face in 1 Kings chapters 9 and 10. This is the danger that is lurking under the surface of these chapters. We're in a sermon series at the moment looking at the life of King Solomon, one of Israel's greatest ever kings. And today we come to the midpoint of Solomon's life. He has been king for about 20 years at this point in the story, but there's no midlife crisis for Solomon. He is at the high point of his life. Chapters 9 and 10 really describe the golden age of Solomon's life and reign. He is at the peak of his powers. He is at the summit of success. I mean, he has built the temple and lots of other buildings. He has become obscenely wealthy and he is world-renowned for his wisdom. Life just couldn't get any better for King Solomon. But all of this prosperity posed some dangers. And today, as we dive into these chapters, we're going to explore the question, how do we live when life is good? How do we live for God when life is good? What does God require of us? Now, you might be thinking, well, this is great for all those rich people. I hope that they're listening to this sermon. But it's not really for me. I'm just trying to feed my family. I'm just trying to keep a roof over our heads. And listen, I know that times are tough at the moment. Rates are rising. Costs are increasing. Rent is ridiculous. And fuel costs about the same as milk at the moment. But the fact remains, for the most of us, for most of us in the West, and perhaps especially in Australia, we are living more comfortable lives than most people in the world today and most people throughout human history. We even have some advantages over Solomon. We eat a greater variety of fresh food than Solomon would have. We have more comfortable clothes. We sit in more functional furniture. Solomon never got to go to Ikea, which is probably a blessing for him. I spent a whole day a few weeks ago just putting... Fi- anyway, let's not go there. We listen to a better selection of music. Solomon missed out on Bob Dylan and the Beatles. Poor fella. And we use much faster transportation. We have planes and cars and and the like. Now, all of our prosperity, this is not inherently a bad thing. We shouldn't feel guilty about this. We should be thankful to God for the advances in technology. We should be thankful to God for His goodness to us. But we should also recognize that the prosperity around us has some dangers. It had some dangers for Solomon in his day, and it has some dangers for you and I in our day as well. So how do we live when life is good. What does God require of us? That's what we're going to look at today in 1 Kings chapters 9 and 10. And we're going to look at these two chapters under three headings. The first, if you're taking notes, is this. What we see in chapter 9, verses 1 to 9, is a God with a clear command. A God with a clear command. What does God require of us when life is good? Well, he makes it very clear in verses 1 to 9. See, God appears to Solomon for a second time. The first time, if you remember, was back in chapter 3 when God appeared to Solomon in a dream and he offered him the opportunity to ask for whatever he wanted. And wisely, Solomon chose wisdom. Well, this time, God gives Solomon another choice. He puts before him two paths. One, which leads to blessing, and the other, which leads to judgment. The first path 
is the path of obedience, faithfulness. And this is the path that leads to blessing. This is what God says essentially in verses 4 and 5. He says, Solomon, if you walk before me faithfully, like your father David did, then you will experience my blessing. Now, notice that David is the standard here. David is the one against whom all other kings are measured. Not because David was perfect, not at all, we know that. But because David loved God genuinely. David walked with God honestly. And when David sinned, he repented and returned to God sincerely. And this is what God wants from us. Not just conformity to religious rules. Not just going through the motions. He wants inner transformation. He wants our hearts. And this is what he's saying to Solomon and to you and I today. You see, the principle's the same. God wants our hearts. God wants us to walk with him genuinely, honestly, and sincerely. Because this is the path that leads to blessing. I mean, this is what Jesus himself said. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 11. Jesus says, blessed are those who hear the word of God. You are blessed to to be hearing the word of God. And then Jesus says, and obey it. This is the path to blessing. Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that our obedience is what gets us into God's family. We are brought into God's family by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's all of God's grace from beginning to end. But when we have been brought into God's family, we don't then live however we want. We don't just sit on the couch all day. In fact, just like any family, once we have been brought into that family, the way we function in that family is not by living however we want, but by living according to the family rules. And this is what leads to unity and love and flourishing. See, it's not our obedience that gets us into God's family, but the way we live in God's family is by seeking to live faithfully to Him. It kind of uh, makes me think of uh, back in 2010, when I went on a, a Bible study tour through Egypt, Jordan, and Israel. Now, this tour was not a holiday. It was hard work. I mean, we didn't just kind of rock up on the bus and look at a site and then get back on the air-conditioned bus and drive to the next site. We were walking lots of kilometers every day. We were going up and down mountains. I mean, it was hard work. We even had someone leave the tour on the second day. Now, every morning, we would start the day in the same way. We would begin by reciting the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. We would recite that in English and then in Hebrew. We would have a short devotion and prayer. And then right before we set out for the day to to walk the kilometers and to go into the wilderness and to climb mountains, uh, our leader, a pastor named George DeYoung, he would say this to us every morning. He would say, give God something to bless today. In other words, what he's saying, he's saying, put the effort in today to put yourself in a position to experience God's blessing. Because you could just choose to stay at the hotel for the day. Yeah, I've had enough of that hiking in the wilderness. I'm just going to lay by the pool for the day. But to choose that might be to miss out on what God might want to show you that day. And so he would say to us every day, give God something to bless. And this is kind of what God is saying to Solomon Put the effort in to put yourself in the path of blessing. Here's the way an author and a pastor named Philip Ryken puts it. He says, if we work the way God tells us to work, we will have something to share with others. 
If we love the way God tells us to love, we will be able to make strong relationships that last a lifetime. If we feed the hungry, help the sick, and visit people in prison, we will enter into our Father's happiness. These and many other blessings will be ours if we take the road less traveled. This is the the path that God lays before Solomon, the path of obedience that leads to blessing. But it's not the only path that God lays before Solomon and before us. There's another way to go in life. And it's the way of disobedience, which leads to judgment. God warns Solomon in verses 6 and 7 and says, If you turn away from me, if you ignore me, if you go after false gods and idols, it will lead to destruction and judgment. Now, this might sound a little bit mean of God, but God is very graciously giving Solomon a very clear warning about the very high cost of disobedience and idolatry. He's saying, if you choose the wrong road, if you chase after idols and false gods, it will have terrible consequences. The land will be lost, the temple will be destroyed, and the nation will go into exile. This is the high cost of idolatry. And friends, this principle is still true to this day. There's a warning here for us as well to show us where our idolatry leads. See, idolatry is more than just bowing down before a statue, though it certainly is that. Idolatry is taking anything, even a good thing, and turning it into a God thing. Bowing down before it, looking to it for for meaning and joy and satisfaction and salvation. And we do this, we bow down at these altars, especially when life is good. We might bow down at the altar of money and possessions, measure our worth based on our net worth, or derive satisfaction from the size of our homes, or categorize ourselves according to the cars that we drive. We bow down at the altar of sex and pleasure. We base our identity on our sexuality, rather than what God says about us. We pursue sexual pleasure, even if there is a cost to our partner, to our kids, to our community. We worship at the the altar of power and control. We even worship at the altar of our children, making everything about them. On and on we could go. John Calvin, the, the great reformer, he said it this way. He said, the human heart is an idol factory. Now, I'm not necessarily disagreeing with Mr. Calvin. You know, God forbid I wouldn't do that. But I would suggest that our hearts are a little bit like vacuum cleaners. We latch on to many different things around us and we try to suck meaning and joy and satisfaction and salvation from them. But it's foolish and it's ultimately futile because until we latch on to the one true God, we will never be filled and we will never be satisfied. This is why Jesus said, I am the bread of life. That's why he said, I'm living water. He's the one that we need. And God is graciously warning us today, if you you walk the path of of disobedience, if you chase after false gods and idols, it won't lead to life and blessing. You won't find what you're looking for. It will lead to death and judgment. So getting back to our question, how do we live when life is good? Well, the answer is pretty simple. What God wants from us is obedience faithfulness. He wants our hearts. He wants us to walk the the narrow road which Jesus talked about, the road which leads to life. 
Now, now to choose to walk this narrow road, it, it's not just a decision that you make once in life. Now, that time that you, you prayed a prayer or you walked an aisle. Now, to walk that narrow road is a decision that you make every single day. I mean, this was true for Solomon. At this point in his life, he was at the peak of his powers. He was a success in every sense of the word. He was rich, he was wise, he was powerful. He'd done more for God than just about any other king in history. But even after all this past success, Solomon still had to get up every day and choose God. He can't rely upon his position as king or what he'd achieved as king or his past request for wisdom. He had to make the decision of daily obedience. And we have to make the same decision. Daily obedience. We can't kind of live off the fumes of the past. It doesn't matter how well we began. It doesn't matter how faithfully we've served, how generously we've given, how much we've done. The, cho the choice remains before us today and every day for the rest of our lives. Will I walk the narrow road or the broad road? Now, I'm not saying that our position in God's family is tenuous and shaky. I'm not saying that every day you need to get up and you need to prove yourself worthy, otherwise God is going to throw you out of the family. I'm not saying that. Jesus said in John 10 about those who come to him, he says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. And listen to this, this promise in God's word should just fill your heart with joy. No one will snatch them out of my hand. If you have come to faith in Jesus, you are safe and secure in his hands. You will never lose your salvation because Jesus will never lose you. No one can snatch you out of his hands. But the Bible is clear. It's from this position of safety and security that we begin to work out our salvation, that we make our calling and election sure by following Jesus today. Not by living off something we've done in the past, not by making a promise to do something in the future, but by following Jesus today. Hebrews 3 puts it this way. Encourage one another, how often? Daily. As long as it is called today. Why? So that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Now, what does this look like practically? How do we choose to follow God today? Well, it means every day when we get up, we give God something to bless. We choose to put in the effort to put ourselves in the path of blessing. It means we put in the effort to get out of bed a little bit earlier, to turn off the TV, to put down our phone, to pick up God's word, to show up at church, to look up in prayer, to work hard at school, to do our best at work, to cultivate our character, to fight for contentment, to say no to sin and yes to God, to say things to others like, I'm sorry, I forgive you, I love you, and a thousand other daily decisions. We choose for God by choosing God's way every day. We walk with God by walking the narrow way. And when we don't, when we fail, when we fall, when we sin, we turn to God in repentance. We come to Him for cleansing and we keep moving forward. So how do we live when life is good? We make the decision of daily obedience. And the reason this is so important, the reason we need to make this decision is because every day that we get up, we're going to be tempted by things around us. 
we're going to be distracted by other things which will want us to pull us away from the way of Jesus. I mean, this was certainly true for Solomon and for those in his day. And this leads us to our second point. Don't worry, the next two will be much shorter than the first one. We've seen a God with a clear command. And what we see now is a king with a glorious kingdom. I've already told you this was Solomon's golden age, the the peak of his powers. And this is really what we see in the second half of chapter 9 and the second half of chapter 10. The second half of chapter 9 shows us that all of the different projects and activities that Solomon was busy with. I mean, he is managing international relations. He is organizing large forces of labor. He is building extensively in Jerusalem and beyond. He is building ships for international trade. He is fulfilling his obligations at the temple and so much more. And the point of this list is that Solomon was doing what a king should be doing, and he was doing it well. The kingdom was well managed. But Solomon was not only industrious, Solomon was also prosperous. And this is what the second half of chapter 10 shows us. It shows us the splendor of Solomon's kingdom, his great wisdom and his great wealth. In fact, look at verse 23 of chapter 10. It says, King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. I mean, Solomon is at the top of the tree. He is very wise and he is very, very wealthy. In fact, the key word in this section in chapter 10 is gold. The word gold is repeated 11 times. Solomon's wealth is just mind-blowing. In fact, there's so much gold in Solomon's kingdom that by comparison, silver was almost nothing. Look at verse 21. All of King Solomon's drinking cups were gold. He is having his morning flat white out of a pure gold mug. There was no silver since it was considered as nothing in Solomon's time. This was truly a golden age. And it's very impressive, but what are we to make of it? What should we do with all this gold? Is it good, is it bad, or is it both? Well, the first thing we need to be clear on is that gold is not wrong in and of itself. Gold is not an evil thing. Gold is a good gift from God. Just like bronze and silver and timber, they've been given to us by God for our use and for our enjoyment. And this is why the Bible has some good things to say about gold. This is why gold is used in in worship places. We saw it a few weeks ago in the temple. And so let me just say, if you are wealthy, if you have a lot of gold, so to speak, you shouldn't feel guilty or ashamed. You shouldn't feel spiritually inferior. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 22, the blessing of the Lord brings wealth. It's not wrong to be wealthy. I mean, 1 Timothy 6, which we read at the start of the sermon, it didn't say money is a root of all kinds of evil. It said the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. The problem is not money, the problem is greed. And you can be greedy whether you have a lot of money or you can be greedy if you don't have a lot of money. And so if you have lots of money, you shouldn't feel guilty, you should feel responsible to be a good steward of the resources that God has entrusted to you. Wealth is a gift from God, and and yet at the same time, we must also recognize that gold and wealth are temporary and passing away. There's nothing wrong with having lots of money as long as you recognize that it has its limits. I mean, money can't buy you everything you need. 
Money can't solve every problem that you have. And money certainly can't help you beyond the grave. And this is why the Bible says there are other things that are much more precious than money, than wealth. Wisdom is more precious than gold, the Bible says. The Word of God is more precious than gold. Faith in Jesus is certainly more precious than gold. Because it doesn't matter how much money you have, it cannot cleanse you, it cannot forgive you, and it cannot save you. This is why Philip Ryken, again, he says, the poorest sinner who has a Bible to read and believes its saving message is wealthier than the richest man in the world. There's a lot of wealthy people in this building. So how do we live for God when life is good? We make the decision of daily obedience and we recognize that gold is not God. And as we live this way, as we pursue this, this type of countercultural living, we will be different to those around us. And God willing, we will stand out to a watching world. I mean, this was certainly true for Solomon in his day. And it brings us to our third and final point, which is this. We've seen a God with a clear command. We've seen a king with a glorious kingdom. And thirdly and finally, we see a queen with a receptive heart. See, the first half of chapter 10 tells us about the time there was a special visitor to Jerusalem. The queen of Sheba, which is modern-day Yemen, she'd heard about Solomon's kingdom, she'd heard about his greatness, and she wants to see it with her own eyes. And so she comes to Jerusalem. Now, she actually wanted to test Solomon. She'd heard about his wisdom, she'd heard that he claimed to be God's king, and she wanted to see if he was the real deal. And so she comes and she begins to pepper him with questions. And Solomon is able to answer every single one of them. Nothing was too hard for him to answer. And the Queen of Sheba is just blown away. The wisdom of Solomon, the splendor of his kingdom, it's even better than she'd heard about. But amazingly, with this incredible king in front of her, she doesn't give the glory to Solomon. She gives the glory to God. Look at verse 9. Praise be to the Lord your God who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. She recognizes that it is God's goodness behind Solomon's greatness. Now, why does this matter? Why is this important? Why is this kind of visit to Jerusalem in the Bible? Well, firstly, this is a fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. Do you remember the promise to Abraham back in Genesis 12? God said, I will make you great and through you and your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. This is an initial fulfillment of that promise. The nations are being blessed, even from Yemen. They're coming and they're hearing the word of God and they're meeting God and they're being blessed. But secondly, this story is in the Bible because it is a challenge to you and to me. You know, Jesus actually refers to this story in the Queen of Sheba in Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12 is all about the unbelief of Israel and their religious leaders. They've seen Jesus, they've heard Jesus, they've met with Jesus, and yet they've rejected Jesus. And so he uses the Queen of Sheba to make a point. Look what he says, verse 42. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. You see, Jesus is saying the Queen of Sheba had both less truth and less privilege than these religious leaders. She only had Solomon's wisdom to go on. And she wasn't even part of Solomon's people. 
And yet when she heard Solomon, she responded in faith. Jesus is saying these religious leaders, they have something far greater than Solomon in their midst. They have the Son of God. They have Jesus himself. They can see him. They can hear his words. They can listen to him. And yet they've rejected him. They have hard, unreceptive hearts. And at the judgment, the Queen of Sheba, the Queen with the receptive heart, will condemn them. Because she had less truth and less privilege, and yet she responded in faith. Now the question is, what about us? What about you? The truth is, we have even greater privilege than Israel's religious leaders. We haven't seen Jesus in the flesh, but we can clearly see him in the Bible. And we don't just have a fleeting moment with him, we can see all of his teaching. We can see all of his miracles and works. And we can know what they mean and their significance. We can know the truth about Jesus from beginning to end. But here's the question. What have we done with what we know? What are we doing with what we know? Are we making the the daily decision of obedience? Are we seeking to turn from idols and trust Jesus? Do we have a hard, unreceptive heart or a soft, receptive heart? The truth is, there are dangers all around us and there are dangers within us. There are dangers lurking under the surface. The devil, suffering, distractions, and even prosperity. And all of them are tempting us to turn away from Jesus. But today, Jesus is saying to you and he's saying to me, don't give up, don't give in, and don't turn away. He who began a good work in you, he will carry it on to completion. So keep trusting him, Keep moving forward, and he will never let you go. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have taken hold of us, that you have brought us into your family, filled us with your spirit, given us your word and now you call us to the joy and the privilege of walking with you each and every day. Lord, where we have failed to to make that daily decision, where if we're honest, we've been walking away from you and not towards you, this morning we want to come back. We want to realign ourselves with your will and your way and your word knowing that you never leave us, never forsake us, and that you never let us go. And so, Lord, as long as it is called today, let us encourage one another to keep following Jesus, to keep moving forward, to not give up and to not give in, to not be distracted by the the lights and the, the prosperity around us, but to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And we pray this in his name. Amen. We now have the, the privilege to respond by coming.